Welcome to the Business Leader Insight Podcast. We have a special edition for you this week where we're talking to three very senior business leaders about how you can take your business from panic to prosperity. Do keep checking in on the Business Leader Podcast feed and then you can catch up with all of our interviews and today's session at a time that is convenient to you. Hello and welcome to this very special live event brought to you by Funding London and presented by Business Leader. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, Business Leader is the UK's leading B2B media platform and we have a print magazine, live and virtual events network and a website updated daily with news and insight. If you want to find out more about us, uh, do go to www.businessleader.com. .co.uk. Well, we're in for a treat today because we have three incredibly successful British business leaders on our panel. All three have worked uh, in the multiple iconic startups and built companies generating tens of billions of dollars in revenue. They created and led unicorns before the term was popular and even invented. Uh, All three started their career in Oracle when it was a startup with a few dozen people. We'll now uh, start to uh, introduce our guests today, uh, starting with Steve uh, Garnett. Uh, after over a decade with Oracle, uh, Steve went on to co-create two other amazing companies, Siebel Systems and Salesforce, which will be very familiar uh, to many. He created Salesforce with the founders, Tom Siebel and Mark uh, Benioff. Uh, so uh, welcome today, Steve. Thank you, Ollie. I'm, uh, first of all, delighted to be here supporting uh, Funding London. Um, I always look forward to it and hopefully we're going to have some some lively questions which will uh, generate some some confidence in the leaders on the line today and hopefully uh, give them strength to go away and take some positive action from it. Uh, thank you, uh, Steve. Uh, also on the panel uh, is Stephen uh, Kelly. Um, after leaving Oracle, uh, Stephen uh, Kelly has led three successful turnarounds to growth as a hands-on CEO, most recently at Sage, another household name. He's the only business leader in the UK who has run two FTSE 100 companies. He was appointed Prime Minister's Business Ambassador uh, between 2015 and 19. He's currently the chair of Tech Nation uh, 2. So thank you uh, to yourself, Stephen, too, for, for, for being with us today. I'm really excited, Ollie, and uh, like Steve and Sukendu, uh, very committed to what Fund in London do and the amazing entrepreneurs out there. And I think when we look at ourselves, probably we've got, I don't know, 100-person years of building companies and and enjoying that white knuckle ride, really. Uh, and many of us kind of spent a lot of time in the US and saw how to build companies in, almost like in the teaching hospital of software back in Oracle. So hopefully our experience today will be of use to the next generation of entrepreneurs and obviously very excited to join. So keep those questions coming in. Thank you, uh, Stephen. Also on the panel is Sukendu uh, Pal. Uh, also, after a decade with Oracle, uh, Sukendu went on to work for the biggest bank in the world, where he created an organization which became a multi-million dollar business serving the emerging markets, uh, which at the time spanned 72 uh, countries. He then led another successful startup and has founded another company. Uh, also, uh, thank you uh, to yourself, uh, Sukendu, too. Thank you, Ali. It's good to be back. Uh, like as Stephen and uh, Steve said, we are looking forward to seeing the questions from our listeners for this live Q&A, hopefully giving us clues of how they are seeing the challenges of moving from panic to a purposeful world. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Sikendu. Uh, we'll now start... Uh... Uh, the, the 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 panel debate is really pertinent, as as Sukendu said, as we move from what may be considered a very difficult three to four months into into recovery and hopefully uh, uh, prosperity. First, I'm going to direct a few questions at Steve Garnett, uh, but if the other panelists would like to add anything, uh, we will bring them in uh, uh, too. Um, so, Steve, you know, as I kind of mentioned there, uh, you know, a fire has raged through the heart of the economy, destroying and disabling many companies. I mean, how, in your opinion, should we now reshape? and rebuild great companies for the new normal? Hmm. Well, I think firstly, it's always very sad to see people's hard work, their dreams, their ambitions and destroyed. And there's no doubt that some business models post COVID no longer work that might've worked uh, pre COVID. And so it's really sad to see uh, see that happening. 
but you know we've seen these things before we saw lots of businesses go um go out of uh, go bust in the dot-com crash and the financial crash the various um recessions and um you know post-covid there'll be there'll be future problems downstream that will will force that it's almost a business darwinianism uh, that said you know when when bad things happen i've always been a believer you can do really three things you, you you've got a choice of three things you either let it define you you let it destroy you or you let it strengthen you so i think it's uh, obviously i think a lot of the leaders on the line today will be thinking okay i've got to allow this to strengthen me and strengthen my business and we'll look at it from that that point of view and um yeah, that sometimes means you've got to make some changes and make some changes that uh, you've maybe held on to for a long time. So uh, I guess the first tip would be not to cling to something that it was a, that's now a mistake because it took you a long time to make that decision. You have to recalibrate your models. And uh, to do that, I think you have to go back to the things that don't change and um, double down on what's going um to work around customer success. So go, go recalibrate your model around customer success, recalibrate it, find out is it still compelling? Is it still um, an, a must have for the customer as opposed to a like to have? Uh, double down on your innovation. And maybe in challenging times where a lot of your employees are a little bit afraid and scared, double down on your employee success on communicating with them making sure that they all have a sense of purpose, they have a plan, and they know how to uh, move forward in, in, you know, in, in some of these challenging, challenging times. I just want to also um, ask you, in, in terms of uh, leadership, what, what, in your opinion, will, will be the required model for, for leaders now in, the, in, in, in this new normal? Well, you know, I often get asked what, what things are changing in the new normal, but I think I don't often get asked what things are not changing and I don't think leadership is changing in that sense. You know, for me, these books and books have been written on leadership, but for me, good leadership is creating a vision, something that's energizing and compelling and exciting so that people want to, want to follow you. And, and, and then, uh, you know, getting them energized around filling in the gaps on that vision. It's not, leadership is not about telling them what to do. So, you know, that, that's, that's point one. Um, I, th I think, as I said, um, the new leadership will be to go back to your customers, because that's always the font of, in my opinion, font of all knowledge, and recalibrate your model, recalibrate your vision for the next 18 months for your business. Is that what the customer wants? Is that what they're going to buy? Is that what they're going to really, really want? Um, and then energize that internally with your employees. Make sure that they know what they're doing, that there's a coherent plan, that they're all working together uh, to get together. Um, make that customer success a core value of your business. If it's not a core value, then there's, there's something not right. So always come back to that customer success as, as, as a core value. Um, innovate, humility, and uh, perhaps something I've, I've it's a, been a mantra of, of mine for most of my business life is that I'm a big believer that business travels at the speed of customer success. So if your customers are failing, people will know about it, know about it really, really quickly. And if the new norm is that you're not as compelling, you have to change that. So just remember business, um, business, uh, business travels at the speed of customer success. So get them, get them successful. No, thank you, Steve. Um, some really good insight there. Uh, Stephen uh, Kelly just also wanted just to ask you uh, a question related to that as well, Steve. Yeah, I, you know, obviously, uh, Steve, you said it all there, and it's, it's a tough time for a lot of businesses. But um, some great innovations have come out of massive recessions. If you look back in the 70s, Microsoft was founded in the midst of the oil crisis. The iPhone, you know, in 2007 at the start of the credit crunch. Um, and then Airbnb and Uber actually at the same sort of time. And I just think when you were back in the engine room of Salesforce, not only did Mark Benioff and you invent that company, which is 21 years later, almost 21 billion, market cap approaching 200 billion hugely successful company but but also mark um named that company salesforce.com 
right at the kind of collapse of the the dot com bubble. So, what what your personal anecdote of how do you I- innovate in the deepest recession uh, and the conviction that that entails, Steve? What's what's your personal perspective on that? Well, I think when I when I came into the business, I remember um, you know IBM were like uh, Amazon, Google, and Facebook put together today. They they were so dominant. Um, we had where it was three hundred thousand employees, and we had a we had a handful, and yet we knew that they were still creating huge complexity for the customer, huge mm-hmm. opportunity therefore to take that complexity away and to solve the customer's problems. And this this is why I keep iterating, go back and be an insurgent for the customer, find out where the difficulties are on the customer side, not on what you think is great, but what the customer thinks, and then innovate around it. So at Salesforce, as you as you picked up, we felt that. Software was hugely complex. Was complex. The customer had to employ armies of um, Accenture consultants, Deloitte consultants, Price Waterhouse consultants to fix the problem on their sites at great expense, or hire their own IT departments. And we felt there was an opportunity with the internet coming along for us to hide that complexity from the customer. We would figure out how to do upgrades and updates and bug fixes and five nines availability and on and on and on, which would allow the customer to go with their business. And that, in the simple terms, was how the Salesforce.com uh, genesis got started. Take complexity away from your customer. And, you know, today I would say, that, you know, so we disrupted Oracle. Somebody will come along and disrupt us, right? This is not the end of innovation. Uh, we just, you know, IBM were disrupted by Salesforce. Other people will be disrupting what seems to be the giants today. So you have to think of it from a customer's, customer perspective and then say, where can I take away complexity um, from. Oh, thank you, Sir. As, as, as Sukendi, did, did you want to add something as well? Uh, yes, I think you know, behind what Steve and Stephen has alluded to lies the leadership. And uh, all three of us, you know, we have been very fortunate to work with some fabulous leaders in professional life. And I have been lucky to come across some iconic leaders of our generation in personal life. I was, you know, I was born in Calcutta, where Mother Teresa set up her first missionaries of charities. And I grew up seeing her when she wasn't even known outside Calcutta. Never mind the global icon she eventually became. And these experiences, you know, tell me that leaders come in all shapes, gender, and sizes. And, you know, Mother Teresa was less than four feet, six inches tall, and she could manage all Blacks, British Lions and all their organizations put together and not better than Eddie Jones does. So, you know, the, the takeaway is that, you know, how a CEO, for example, shows up in 2020 will be a new yardstick for leadership for the new normal, as Steve alluded to. Companies that demonstrate lack of empathy, that don't stretch themselves to, to serve others, companies who are just self-serving and remain silent on key issues such as gender and racial inequalities who refuses to share the economic gains will find their brands and reputations permanently damaged you know there's a growing cry for more responsible and compassionate c-suites perhaps just perhaps our future will be shaped by a kind of reverse Darwinism. And that means survival of the kindest and most compassionate rather than the most ferocious and self-serving. And there's no better example than Mark Benihoff in leadership role. He's such a great guy. And he is not just after making money. He's compassionate and caring. No, thank you, uh, Sukendu. Some, some really salient uh, points there. I think it leads us nicely on uh, to my next question, which I'll bring Stephen uh, in for. I mean, uh, Sukendu talked about the, you know, the purpose that, that underpins uh, good businesses. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on how, how do we rebuild public confidence in capital, capitalism and its ability to function in a way that generates inclusivity and sustainable prosperity and some of those points that, that Sukendu touched on? Yeah, I think um, it's a really interesting time, and and in these times of crisis, it's, it's sort of good to reflect 
and not just go back to the ways it were before. Because fundamentally, actually, capitalism would have failed in the face of the pandemic. And capitalism, I guess, is about the individual. Um, but what's had to happen is every modern government have had to come in with eye-watering bailouts to keep the economy and keep capitalism afloat. So I think obviously Rishi Sunak in the UK has come out with packages over 330 billion and still counting. I'm sure there'll be more, more bailout packages to keep the economy and to keep capitalism uh, as the, the sort of dominant business culture. But where, where ultimately we've seen it shift is moving towards collectivism and also the greater public good. And I think during this crisis, there's been, as Sukhendu said, uh, amazing business leaders stand up tall and think of the greater good of not only their customers, but their employees, their communities. And now as people go back to work, they're thinking about safeguarding, you know, with razor-like uh, scrutiny to make sure the workplaces are as safe as they can possibly be. Uh, and I do think it's a time where it's all about trust in business. And I think the business community historically, probably particularly in the UK, has had a bad rap uh, and generally is not trusted. So the stereotype people would have is around fat cats. And, and what I loved about the US when I was there is they celebrate entrepreneurs. And, you know, if you left your hometown and you were hugely successful, you'd be celebrated, you'd be, uh, you know, put on, on the school plaque, you'd be taken back to your hometown, and, and you'd be an icon. Um, sadly, sometimes in the UK, that doesn't happen. You know, if someone's very successful, and they go overseas and create a fantastic business, sadly, jealousy sometimes kicks in. But I think we have a responsibility uh, to really put trust at the heart of our value proposition with our customers, our brand, our employees, our suppliers, the community. So it is a much more multi-stakeholder thread to the philosophy. And I think, again, people like Benioff have done very, very clear visions of rebooting capitalism to make sure it is fit for purpose in the modern age. And it serves a much broader sense of just shareholders and it extends to obviously customers employees the community suppliers and the whole ecosystem that companies can create wealth and opportunity and greater prosperity for all now i'm very encouraged in this pandemic because we've seen uh, not only the the worst in terms of human suffering but we've seen the best of humanity coming out and there's examples like the Dunelm chief executive and Kirk Geiger chief executive immediately taking almost like 100% pay cuts for themselves personally to say look we're in this together I'm absolutely up for taking huge personal sacrifice to double down with every one of my employees to really serve our customers, to outreach to the key workers and do the right thing. I think doing the right thing and being all in this together has been a bold statement made by many chief executives that provides lasting impact to really rebuild that trust in business. So actually, I'm, I'm very optimistic and I think I, I talk to a lot of CEOs and now they're looking to say, what have we learned out of this crisis? And it has brought the best out of us, but how can we almost take that forward and build that goodness into programs, into volunteering, into foundation work, into community work, where that wasn't the case before, but people with the space and time of lockdown have really thought about what's important. And I think right at the heart of that, compassionate capitalism and rebooting capitalism to serve a wider community has come to the fore. Um, I'll ask you uh, another question. Um, you know, in your opinion, what is the biggest challenge companies face in terms of business recovery at this time? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Ollie. And actually, Steve, Sikendu, or I could uh, give you uh, the answer because um, we always use these phrases. They might sound a bit trite, but they're so true. Um, and they're quite sobering. You know, growth cures all evils, typically. If your company's growing and you're hiring, it means you've got promotions, it means you can pay bonuses, it means you can invest in the product, you can invest strongly in customer success and all the things Steve said. 
um, if you're declining your revenues, it's a really tough space to be. So I, I know a lot of companies have really pivoted to take advantage of the whole shift in terms of consumer attitudes around digital and the digital economy and moving online in the last five months. And, you know, everybody has said that in the last five months, there's probably been more digital transformation than the prior five years. So the other, the other kind of um, really compelling statement is with growth, you are, as a company, you either grow fast or you die slowly. Back to what Steve said, if you don't have a vision to become your market leader and put the customer at the heart of your business, then in reality, it's a long, painful death of a business. Um, so growth is what you have to, coming out of this pandemic, think about how do you really learn from what's gone on, reconnect with your customers, reconnect with your employees, and create that magic where you're building either products or services that meet the needs of your customers and really uh, differentiate yourselves from your competitors or disrupt the whole marketplace with a completely new offering. And if you do that and do that well and relentlessly, then you're on a path to growth and success and then have a culture where you fail fast and have a learning culture where you're always pushing the envelope for the customer and innovate for the customer, which will fuel greater growth. And if you have that, you're on a trajectory for great success. Thank you, uh, Stephen. I'm just going to bring uh, Sukendu in uh, with you. Um, Sukendu, did, did you have anything you wanted to add on Stephen's uh, initial point about capitalism? Uh, I think so, because I know Stephen is deeply passionate about comp compassionate capitalism. So is uh, Steve Garnett. What we seem to have, you know, is two forms of capitalism. One is the Anglo-Saxon model, modified by economist Milton Friedman. And the other one I call callous capitalism, which allows privileged individuals and businesses to extract maximum from everybody else. Mm. Both forms, you know, weakened competition, lower productivity growth, as we have seen, promote ultra high inequality, and not surprisingly, as we have seen in recent years, increasingly degraded democracy. You see, this is the problem with two-legged table. No table can balance itself on two legs, let alone one. The world needs a third leg. And that is precisely what Steve Kelly and Steve Garnett call when they say compassionate capitalism, without which we are heading for a disaster. I think, you know, we are at the Kodak moment for capitalism. We can learn from the horrors of this pandemic and reimagine capitalism in the form of compassionate capitalism. Sekendo, I just want to um, uh, stick with you and talk about uh, this kind of uh, you know, idea more about compassionate capitalism and how, in your opinion, can purpose and profit uh, coexist uh, for businesses? You know, I speak uh, with the CEOs and founders regularly and the feedback I get is that they feel there is no conflict pursuing purpose and profit together. Yet, I fully understand that for some CEOs, the answer may be a quiet no. But that is a big, big mistake. CEOs, you know, must remember, as Steve was alluding to earlier, that growth isn't just about scale. Value isn't only about pound and dollars. And profit isn't just for putting money in their and shareholders' pocket. You know, I grew up in Yorkshire, so I can hardly be called a dreamer. But imagine this, an Amazon that uses its capabilities in technology and logistics to reduce want on the planet we live. An Apple that develops wearable medical technology that improves our healthcare outcomes. A Facebook that helps people breed their differences rather than provide them with cognitive and ideological bubbles and a Google that lives up to its stated goal of bringing democracy to the world's knowledge. Can they turn these visions into actionable and achievable strategies for profit? Of course they can. You know, the companies I just mentioned, they are run by some of the smartest people on this planet. Purpose and profit are not mutually exclusive. Companies should grasp the opportunity and drive the business for profit 
with clearly defined purpose, benefiting all stakeholders, not just the shareholders. And that way, purpose comfortably coexists with profit. Thank you, um, Sukendu. Uh, I just want to ask you another question, actually, in terms of uh, the here and now. I mean, in your opinion, what will leaders need to do to keep their teams engaged, uh, ensure morale is high, and you know, can create a really, really strong culture and maintain high, high performance in the next kind of few months and years as, as we move into recovery? You see, this is, Oli, this is a huge challenge in normal time, never mind in the new normal environment. Leaders will have their work cut out. They will need to overcommunicate to keep their teams engaged. They will need to make sure that their communications are completely free of ambiguity so that all employees, many of whom are working remotely, can focus on the work they're doing rather than speculating or worrying about what the boss is thinking. You see, culture is invisible during good times. But in a crisis like this one, its presence can be seen clearly in the collective behaviors that either help a company pull together and get things done or lead to inertia, confusion, or even mistrust. Effective measures, you know, I think that leaders can take to take morale high, uh, fall into three distinct categories. First, practice what you preach. Second, give with the purpose in mind. You know, Stephen Kelly was saying that you know, some of the CEOs, they take a salary cut. Of course, you know, that's what practice, what you preach means. And give with the purpose in mind means whatever they give, it is vitally important to tie it to vision, mission, and the values of your company so that people can understand why you are doing it. And third, be completely transparent. You know, leaders should be transparent about the sacrifice they make. If a leader, for example, donates 20% of his salary to a non-profit outfit, first, what the non-profit is, and secondly, what exactly is happening to the money. For example, Jack Dorsey has donated $1 billion of his core equity to fund COVID-19 relief. You see, not only is he giving away a vast amount of money, he also shared how the funds would be spent. Put simply, crisis creates the opportunity for leaders to provide direction, meaning, support when followers need it the most. These type of actions improve morale and trust for the rest of us and ease the pain the rest of us are feeling in these difficult and uncertain times. Thank you, uh, Sukendu. Um, I just want to bring uh, Stephen and Steve back in. Um, I think uh, there's an interesting uh, point I think Stephen has uh, regarding uh, you know, our companies that are purpose-driven more, more successful. I don't know if, if Stephen, you wanted to kind of uh, talk to Sukendu about that. Yeah, and uh, I'd love your views, both of you. I, when I joined Sage as CEO there, I introduced something and I, I have no shame about it. I plagiarized Mark um, Benioff's um, Salesforce Foundation where we had... 2% of free cash flows going to a charitable foundation, um, basically five days paid volunteering for all our people around the world and uh, two free pro software licenses for not-for-profits and charities so they could run their efficient organization and make sure all the funds went to the causes they care about. Now, I can't really believe I'm asking this question in 2020, but I did hit some resistance from some of my colleagues who felt actually that would make us less successful and it would be a distraction. Um, good news is the cynics actually became our greatest supporters because they saw the impact of the Sage Foundation and it changed, transformed the culture of the company. It was a huge recruitment tool. But based on your experience, Akenda and, and Steve, you talked to lots of CEOs, you see a lot of practical examples of putting purpose at the heart with all the other uh, priorities around customers. Um, what, how much more successful do you see purpose-driven organizations in your experience? Steve? Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things that is hard to put a financial measure on it, uh, Stephen. But I have to say, and I, I, like you, I was challenged many times when we were building Salesforce to say, I remember sitting down with the deputy editor of a very 
I won't name them, but a, a very iconic um, business magazine who said to me, how dare you give away uh, six, in our case, we used to give away sick giveaway. We used to encourage our employees to take six days a year paid leave to go and work for people who were less fortunate than we are. We're all very, very fortunate to work in the computer industry where we get paid well, we have great uh, careers, and we're very, very fortunate. You know, talent is equally dis distributed, distributed, but opportunity isn't. And we have to remember, remember that. And I used to get challenged by people saying, well, hang on, this is your shareholders' money, not your money to give away. And my response was basically, well, it's part of our core values. So please do not buy our shares when you look at our, at our uh, prospectus because we've built it into our core values that this is something that we believe in passionately. And if you don't believe in that, then please do not buy our stock was point one. Point two was, in my experience and at Salesforce, 85% of my team in Europe took their six days a year. We only had two rules, no religion and no politics. Outside of that, they could go and work for what they were passionate on, not what Mark Benioff was passionate about or what I was passionate about, but what they were passionate about in their local community. That was so important. And what we found anecdotally was that we'd employ very smart computer scientists who work really hard, wanted to get great, great, have great careers and get promotions. Of course they do. But they also want to help people who are less fortunate. And when they went off and helped and worked in Teenage Cancer Trust or the local hospice or whatever their passion may have been, they come back re-energized. They thought they had a big problem working on a computer science project with a customer. Then they realized we haven't got any problems at all. And they come, they come back, they come back, they come back energized, they'd feel better, they'd feel better about the company, they'd work harder, and they were they were more passionate. How you quantified that was, was difficult to put dollars onto it, but we all as a management team believed this helped us. And when we talked to customers, the customers liked our values. Obviously they don't buy your products because they just like your values. But if it was neck and neck with a competitor, we often got the decision because they liked our values. And I think it, it's, it's a virtuous circle and so for the, the leaders on the call today who haven't embraced some kind of um, philanthropic approach into, the, into the, the fabric of their business, I would encourage them to do so because it, in my experience, it definitely is um, pro-business. Thank you, uh, Steve. I don't know if you wanted to, to add something to that, Sekendu. Uh, yes, and I would follow it up with what Steve already said. It is, you know, a few minutes earlier, I said, give with the purpose in mind you know and i said whatever you give it is important to tie it to your vision mission and values now just before the pandemic i will again cite mark benihoff you know he said to his colleagues is that nobody is going to lose jobs while this pandemic continues and he said that you know nobody is going to lose jobs but when you go back to your home and working from home can you make sure that your cleaners your gardeners your nannies and your rest of them they don't lose their jobs either now he was saying basically look this is my these are my values hmm. you may have different set of values can you please go and do what is right right and that you know that's the leadership traits we are seeking and wanting to see in the post-pandemic era it is not too much to ask is it I think, I think I'd add one more thing, if I may. I mean, we, we talked about it, Benioff, myself, and the management team for a while at Salesforce. And, you know, if you took it to an extreme, those of you on the call who've been to San Francisco, uh, I think will recognize that there was a big homeless problem there, which, which we at, at Salesforce were trying to uh, help in our, in our way. Um, and if you take it to the extreme, what were we supposed to do? Are we supposed to go in, turn up at the office in our maybe our flash cars or we turn up at the office with our, our, our fancy suits and step over people to go to our nice jobs? Is, is that what society is all about? Is that what business is all about? Of course, that can't be right. And we shouldn't allow that to be right. Can we solve that as one individual company? No. But imagine the power of if all the people on the call today and all the businesses around the globe started to put some kind of uh, corporate philanthropy inside of their business, 
whether it be one percent half a percent a couple of percent it doesn't matter what the number is but start to weave in that passion into their business we were big believers is you can do well and you can do good at the same time thank you Steve. i think that's 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 quite quite a profound and insightful um uh, statement there so, so so thank you for that and um we're going to just now keep um everybody on screen and, and have some questions uh from our audience uh and viewers we, we've had one in and um i don't know who wants to kind of uh, start with this but yeah it's an interesting one i mean everyone will maybe have their own view on this but what will this pandemic be remembered for in in your opinion if we start with you stephen yeah i think um there's, there's a couple of things and uh, we're having a chat over dinner with um my kids and their friends um who are all grown up and and we grew up in a generation that were massively impacted by the second world war and then rationing and it changed their behaviors about hoarding food making sure food was never thrown away it's amazing even 30 40 years later and, and i'm sure the impact of the lockdown and the pandemic will have a lasting effect on people's behavior um i think as i've said generally the the the, the best in people has been seen and witnessed in terms of the community spirit, helping, volunteering, just the, the overwhelming love for key workers, frontline workers who put their own lives at risk. Um, and I think the other thing it will be remembered for actually is um, that simple things matter. And I don't, again, mean that in any trite way, but family matters, friends matter things when when people have more time and space they really reconnect with what's important in life and it's truth and i'd, I'd be guilty of this i'm probably we probably all are you just rush around you run at a thousand miles an hour as an entrepreneur on this call you, your to-do list is just always increasing but with lockdown it actually makes you think about well am i doing enough for my employees am i communicating with them uh empathetically am i connecting to their issues uh, are some of them suffering around mental health issues and what can i do to step in and not only provide the leadership the communication but support for them because they're almost like my family um and i think you know it really has allowed people to just to clear the clutter away get focused on what's important around customers around employees around uh making sure that companies uh, emerge stronger and not only survive but now think about pivoting towards Ollie, back to you. So, yeah, sorry, Stephen. I was just uh, uh, muted. And apologies. Um, yes, uh, Steve, if you'd like to um, yeah, very yeah, quick, cover that very question. quickly, um, because it's been debated so much in the, in the press and everywhere else. I'm not sure I, I've got an awful lot to add. I think, firstly, it will be remembered for the tragic loss of life. And I think everybody knows somebody who's either suffered or has, has uh, knows somebody who's lost somebody. So I think that will be the first thing that will will be remembered for perhaps the second thing is the the speed and quality of some of the response has clearly been the government the mental response has clearly been slow in in the light of the overwhelming evidence that we we can see coming towards us um that was that's part of it being disappointing it's also meant that a lot of companies have had to recalibrate their business models that maybe worked before that will no longer work with social distancing and uh, might not work for some time until um, medicine and vaccines and whatever cat, uh, catches up. I think like Steve and I, like at the positive side, I think we've all started to appreciate just what the key workers do for us and how underserved they are probably in their respective uh, pay and salaries and, and um and hopefully we can start to come to um, bring some pressure on that. Uh, community spirit has been amazing. Certainly where I've been living down in Hampshire, I've been very fortunate not to be cooped up somewhere. Um, and perhaps the, the, the home life balance has also come to the forefront where we don't need to commute necessarily for that meeting. We all, the, the, the pre-wisdom was that we had to be in that meeting in person, in that room in London, New York, uh, Los Angeles or wherever. And I think like everybody on this call today, perhaps, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, two in 10, three in 10, that you might need to be physically there as opposed to virtually. Um, so it'd be remembered for the big shift to, I think, online uh, online presence. Thank you, uh, uh, Steve. And, and, and Sukendu, is, is there anything you, you'd like to add? Uh, yes, I will basically add to what 
probably repeat what Stephen and Steve say. You know, if anything else, um, <clears throat> this pandemic will be remembered for a very, very long time. Uh, in my view, mainly for policy failures, which Steve, Steve was saying, our resilience and our willingness to help out others who are less able and fortunate. Remember Captain Tom, the centurion Yorkshireman? And also, you know, I may say it, you know, both Steve and Stephen has been working flat out during this pandemic and lockdown, helping the founders and CEOs and many startups to sort out their issues and problems and helping them to prepare towards the path for, path for prosperity. However, we'll also remember the negatives which Steve mentioned. Sadly, the loss of lives. Many could have been easily avoided with better and simply competent political leaders in place. But there are positives too. You know, crisis like this always breeds innovation and opportunities. We know World War II produced fast programmable digital computers. And would you believe it also, we also discovered super glue. Now it is unclear at this stage, which of the tens of thousands COVID-19 entrepreneurs are creating products and services that will be succeeding in the next normal environment. But rest assured that many of today's innovations will be the ones that people will be using for years to come. Thank you, uh, Sukendu, uh, for the answer. Our, our next uh, question uh, that we have is has come in. Why should people keep companies around uh, in the next new normal whose sole purpose is enrichment of the select few? I think that touches on some earlier points. But uh, yeah, uh, Stephen, if you'd like to uh, start with that. Yeah, I think um, it's a really good question. And I, I would advocate all of us as both consumers and buyers um, should exercise great uh, wisdom in terms of the companies we we invest in, I suppose, for our purchases. And, um, you know, I'd expect, you know, particularly given the crisis we're going to have with the level of public debt, companies to adopt a much more, again, compassionate and responsible view of paying their taxes and working in the community. But, you know, I, I would choose not to go and buy products from a company that are um, basically paying no tax. I remember again at Sage, we were paying an effective tax rate of 26% uh, because it was the right thing to do. And I'm sure I'm sure there was lots of ways we could have had um, accounting wizardry uh, to, to avoid that. And I think um, it is a case where in the US and the UK, we're gonna have a massive public deficit. And I think to Steve's point is there's a realization that amazing frontline workers should be fairly paid, uh, which means there's going to be a greater burden on the tax system. And invariably, uh, with a progressive tax system, that that needs to be reflected and people need to be responsible. So I think it is going to shift. Um, but I think one of these things is, you know, get involved in debate, there's massive debates around these topics on social media. But the best thing you can do is actually through your own purchasing power, choose that you want to work with ethical companies and you want to, you know, walk the talk and feel comfortable about the companies you're supporting personally through your hard-earned cash. Thank you, uh, Stephen. As, uh, uh, Steve, did, did, did you have any insight? In, in, yeah, I, I think Stephen makes great points there. And I, I think I, I'd almost raise it up even higher. I think outside, you know, just forget COVID for, for one moment. I think the new trend for customers is a lot more discerning. You know, whether you like it or not for the entrepreneurs on, on the call today, whether you like it or not, cu customers today can find an awful lot about you, about your ethics, about uh, how you look after your employees, uh, about your corporate social responsibility, if you have some or not, and on and on. So they, they, they can judge an awful lot about your values pre-engaging with you. Whether you like that or not, it's not going to change. It's going to become more forceful. And so customers or prospects will do their homework more and more, in my opinion, 
going forward and therefore you have to be more trustworthy to your customers you have to be more engaging in your community and which leads us back to the previous discussions we had about corporate social responsibility that will be remembered and the people who did wrong in uh, or the companies that did wrong in um in covid specifically and uh, post-covid that, that will get picked up. I think more and more customers will become discerning and that will reflect on their, on their sales. Said I, I do that now when I look at purchasing, whatever I'm purchasing, I'm looking at more and more the ethics of the company and what do they, what do, they do with their employees, their communities, their corporate social responsibility. Uh, I look at that a lot harder than I might have done you know, a, a few years ago. Thank you, uh, Steve. Uh, uh, Sukendu, um, did you have any further thoughts? Yeah, I will just uh, add to what uh, Stephen and Steve has already said. You know, I can see the merit of this question. You see, when corporate America and Britain are paying their CEOs 168 and 141, and I repeat, 168 and 141 times as much as the median employee's salary and steering the windfall tax, historic tax cuts in the US to option boosting buybacks, which only benefits the top executives and CEOs. CEOs and executives claiming to be solving society's ill can expect pushbacks. And that's precisely what's happening and going to happen. Even in the last few decades, successful companies, their main purpose has been making profit just for themselves. And companies therefore in the post pandemic era will need leaders to go beyond just delivering profit. They will recognize that their businesses of tomorrow's business is not just one dimensional excellence in extracting value from their customers, suppliers, avoiding tax authorities and exploiting workers with zero hour contracts, but instead measurably contributing to the society in which their companies operate. And people who will champion those leaders, such as Paul Pullman, who is the ex-CEO of Unilever, and we talked about our ex-colleague and friend, Mark Benihoff, and ignore companies and people who are in the marketplace, in the business, just for themselves. So it's, you know, I can understand the, the question, the sentiment behind the questions, and I can see what's likely to happen. People will continue to pursue companies with higher ethics and good moral set, not beyond being charities, but making sure the profit and purpose are combined. Thank you, Sukendu. Stephen, did you just have a, a, a final point that you wanted to add? Uh, on Sukendu, I think it's an excellent point, share buybacks. Um, when I was a NASDAQ CEO, we, we just actually kind of never considered them because we considered it as window dressing. And to Sukendu's point, it just, it just uh, fills the pockets of a few, but more importantly, from a leadership point of view, it means you've you've created all that profit, and how are you going to use that cash? It means you've run out of ideas about how to grow or to invest more in customer success or invest more in product or invest more in innovation, and it kind of means that those leadership teams are defunct of new ideas in terms of the next generation of growth. So, I, you know, I think there's some fundamental questions that they should shift completely from doing share buybacks to just getting back to the basics of business, invest in growth, which is the key essence, or building the community at the heart of your business and giving back, as we've said. And I think a key word that is probably overused that all three of us would uh, acknowledge is really important going forward is authenticity. I think the power of great leaders who are authentic and believe in their hearts that they implement strategies and they connect the head, their hearts with the hands of all their people to make a real difference and put purpose at the heart of their companies. Thank you. That's if I could have one very quick final point and then we'll move on, is that I suspect a lot of the people on the call uh, share buybacks, uh, which I totally agree with Stephen. I agree with his, his, his comments, but for most of the people on the call, it's not really an option at this stage. But what I would encourage people on the call to do, and something when I invest in companies, I want to make sure that every employee in that company gets some stock, not just the founder, not just the top management team. And if they don't have an employee stock option scheme, I won't invest. 
because when you're trying to create, com great, create great companies, then everybody should have a portion of that in, in proportion to their contribution, of course. But I want to see whenever I invest in a company that the entire um, company has some, some, um, some stake in the business. Thank you, um, uh, Steve, and uh, uh, some interesting uh, uh, points there. We'll just move on um, to our final question. I think, uh, yeah, sorry, here, here it is. Yeah, so, um, uh, sorry, that was the last, yeah, so the, the, the final question here. COVID-19 will have a massive impact on inequality. How do you suggest we eliminate inequality? I mean, that's a huge uh, question. Um, but, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, if, if, if we start with uh, Sekendu, just, um, yeah, how do we start to, uh, to, to, to tackle this? You see, you heard Steve Lapping. You know, this is a massive, massive question. And the inequality you know, we have has been built up over centuries, and uh, we can't get rid of it overnight. So, you know, I think inequality in two ways, rights and resources. The first is about entitlement as human being. And majority of us, we interfere with these rights all the time because of race, gender, and other characteristics, creating inequalities. The second type of inequality stems from how society redistributes its resources. These two forms are obviously interconnected. One is intrinsic. The other one is limited because resources are finite. So here are my four ideas to address inequality, not to eliminate inequality. And those are two relates to distributing resources and two to relate relates to intrinsic rights. One is to crack down on individuals and multinationals who are in the tax avoidance game. Two, raise union memberships. In the unionization rates have fallen in the UK for decades. In fact, since Mrs. Thatcher came to power in late 1970s. Unions are hardly perfect, we all know that, but they redistribute power in the workplace and redistribute power and you will redistribute the money. Third, improve the contraception and safe legal abortion. You know what? Nothing torpedoes women's ability to better their economic situation than an inability to control their fertility. If you want to reduce inequality for nearly 3.8 billion women on this planet, you better manage the reproductive rights. And that offers unparalleled bang for your buck. And finally, no serious democracies are putting higher education in the center of equalities and opportunities. Yet, Admission to Oxbridge, for example, remains elusive to people of color, as many students from black and ethnic minorities will find out tomorrow when they get their A-level results. So these are the four suggestions I have. Thank you, uh, Sekendu. Uh, Steve, would you like to, to add to that? Uh, yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'm a big believer, that, as I said earlier, that talent is universal that uh, opportunity is not. And I certainly got my breaks getting out of Liverpool. Um, I got lucky uh, uh, on those. But, uh, you know, it's, it, the question itself is huge, of course. It's on a par with world hunger here. Um, uh, however, I believe, I personally believe if we, if we wait for governmental organizations to resolve this, then we'll be, it will be certainly not in my lifetime and not in the lifetime of my children. So I, I think the best... Uh, a platform for change and to address inequality is business uh, for all the reasons we've been touching on in the in the previous in some of the previous questions you know when we started Salesforce it was relatively easy to do because we only had three employees and and but we decided to put one percent of the stock one percent of the profit one percent of the product into the into the foundation it was easy to do because we had no employees that uh, the stock wasn't worth anything and the product didn't work. But apart from that, it was easy to do. <laughs> um, but, but, to, but today, you know, there's uh, 50,000 employees. Uh, there's, a, um, uh, there's something like 50,000 non-for-profits who run their technology on Salesforce. 
Um, as I mentioned earlier, 85% of the staff, there's over 50,000, 60,000 employees now, 85, when I was there running Europe, 85% of the staff took their six days a year. So we're talking hundreds of millions of, uh, millions of hours of volunteerism, uh, tens of millions of dollars of grants. And this is just one company. So I, I believe um, uh, we, we now have, a, we uh, Salesforce now have a chief uh, equality officer so now it's big enough to be able to put these sorts of formalize these positions. Um, but it's also weaving into the fabric that it's not just about profit, it's about addressing inequality as best a business can do. It's address, about addressing the community as best you can do. And everybody can do a little bit. As I said, this is not when you've had a great quarter or a great year, or suddenly you've got a big deal and the cash has come in and the CEO decides to put some money to work on a, on a non-for-profit. This is about weaving it into the fabric of your company. And it doesn't matter how small you are, you can still do a little. And if everybody did a little, then we might go some way to, to addressing the question. Uh, thank you, Steve. Um, yeah, Stephen, if you'd just like to uh, yeah, uh, add your thoughts, please. Yeah, I think the guy's done a great job. It's almost like skinning the elephant and, and breaking it down in little chunks. Is Start tomorrow, think about what, what are the areas of inequality you feel most angry about and what do you want to fix? And it could be just on HR hiring, you know, uh, blind screening on resumes and CVs, or it could be an an anonymizing them to make sure that, that effectively uh, elements around uh, discrimination are eliminated. So I think it is important, you know, when I a big company um, actually with Mark uh, at Salesforce, there was a situation where the governor of um, Georgia was keen to introduce discrimination uh, against uh, gay people and, and allowing companies to fire them uh, because of prejudice. And both uh, myself and a number of other companies, Mark wrote to the governor and said, if you do that, we'll take jobs. Uh, we employ 1,200 people in Atlanta. We'll take jobs out of uh, Georgia, simple as that, because we, we don't want to work in a hostile environment. Uh, equality is embedded into our values, and we would find it you know, just unacceptable. Uh, and it made a difference. They withdrew the bill, and, uh, and effectively, as Steve says, businesses can make a difference. And again, you know, when I turned up uh, at Sage, we made, I think technology companies still got a long way to do on gender, but around sexuality, race, or all the areas that we care passionately about. But you can make a difference. You know, again, Sage, we went from the top 200, 19% who are women, when I joined and three years later, four years later, we got to 35%. So you, you can move the dial, but I think it's important. You, 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 with any of these challenges, such a huge topic, as a leader, you've got to think about what is the area you care most about? Uh, and poll your employees and your colleagues. What, what is the thing that's really kind of stopping uh, equality being embedded? And then just pick one thing and then kind of fix that in the next month then fix the next thing. So then you create this rolling thunder where you programmatize these things and you get momentum and see, people see the impact of it. Um, and they see the successes to Im embed equality at the heart of the culture of your organization. Yeah, thank you, you know, uh, Stephen. I you think that's really, really interesting. Very, quick, very, very quickly, oh, something, something that very quickly, something Stephen touched on there. You know, we did, a, we did uh, something everybody on the call can do, uh, the leaders on the call can do and can do it tomorrow. And, and, and implemented at the beginning of next month is gender pay gap. You know, yeah. we didn't believe we had one at Salesforce until we did the review, then we found we did, and we fixed it overnight. So something, something uh, as, uh, to pick up Stephen's point, something everybody on this call can do, do a review of their gender pay gap this month and fix it next month. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Um, yeah, and I just want to say that that's a, a really interesting uh, point to end on about business being a, a vehicle to um, start to end uh, uh, inequality. I just want to um, end now by just saying thank you individually uh, to all of our guests. So thank you again, uh, Sekendu, today. Some really, really uh, fabulous insights. I mean, if you could just finish by, by briefly letting people know how they can follow your work and get in touch with you. It's fairly easy for people to follow my work, um, as I'm often with, um, in, within the heart of London startup community. I, along with Steve and Stephen, we run business clinics for startups organized by Funding London throughout the year. And these clinics are, in effect, A&E department of Funding London's portfolio companies. 
Uh, in addition to my day job, I'm also involved with Rock 100 Boston Roundtables and an invited charge at London Business School's new venture development program. I can obviously be contacted via Funding London and LinkedIn as well as Twitter. No, thank you, Sakeni. Really, really uh, appreciate your, your time today. Uh, Stephen, yeah, likewise, if you could let people know how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, and actually Steve Garner and I have co-invested in a, a number of uh, companies as angel investors. Uh, and with those, actually, I should thanks publicly Steve and Sakendu, because they, like me, give huge amounts of their time pro bono to mentor uh, chief executives, particularly women chief executives. So, you know, it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy and uh, credit to you guys. So really appreciate that. But you can get in touch with me um, on social media, just the uh, handle at Kelly CEO and always happy to respond, pick it up myself and uh, take the conversation forward. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Stephen, much appreciated. And um, yeah, uh, Steve too, really, really appreciate your your time and insight um, today and, and sharing your experiences. If you could just let, let our, our, our viewers know how they can uh, get in touch with you. Yeah, sure. Sim similar to uh, Sikandu and Stephen, through Funding London, be delighted to do it that way, uh, through LinkedIn. Actually, I'm very open for people sending me direct emails. I answer all my own, uh, all my own email. I'm steve.g.garnet at gmail.com. That's uh, steve.g.garnet, two Ts, at gmail.com. Very happy to uh, take direct uh, uh, emails and I'll respond to them. I normally respond to them pretty quickly.